Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. You can email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com where you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, Love Yourself Today is an incredible film in cinemas now. It looks at the tradition of Damien Dempsey's Christmas concerts and his music, which has helped many people find light in their darkness through shared experience in Dempsey's lyrics. An advocate for mental health, he features in the film, as do some members of his audience, highlighting the various traumas people face in life and how they heal and deal with them. I'll be joined in studio by one of those today, star in the film, Jonathan Smith. I'll also be talking to Joe Barr about his autobiography, Going the Distance, the making of a world class endurance cyclist. The book covers his life on two wheels from the age of four with his first bike to recent years where he continues to win ultra races in his category in his 60s. But the book is packed full of life lessons and so much more than the incredible ultra cycling stories. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, Do you know what I've caught myself doing? Moving the goalposts is what I call it. So I had been saying uh, when we move house, things will settle down. And it's not necessarily my schedule as such. It's my general feeling in myself. I think it's better to feel at peace and content as opposed to hectic. So then I moved house. I'm getting away for a few days next week. And I noticed I just moved the goalpost and I started to say, When I get back from my trip, it'll all calm down. And I'm talking about me. And I just caught myself and I realised I'm the only person who can calm myself down. Don't get me wrong. I'm very happy going around. My home setup is fantastic. I love my life, my work. And I always make sure there's plenty of downtime to do what I love. So it's definitely all about my attitude, which I'm going to turn my attention to now. One of the things I do love about my life is that I'm pretty much master of my own time. I have a couple of things scheduled in every week, but the rest move about so I can have busy weeks, quiet weeks and plenty of time to do things with family and friends and for myself as and when I need to. So that's the good part. But without the set routine, I tend to let time run away from me. So I'm pledging now to you on the radio that I want to plan out my week a little more because often I'll have something on, something good. I'll write it down on the calendar and then I'll forget about it and it'll come back to me on the day. So it almost disrupts me. I rob myself of the chance of looking forward to it and planning it. I go to so many things, be it a night away with friends, a dinner out, anything. And I'm saying to myself, oh, geez, I could do without this now. And I get there and I'm loving it. Of course I am. It's the hectic nature of my mindset. So I'm going to tweak a few things. That's all it is. A little forward planning and a little change in the mindset, pulling myself back when I catch myself throwing hectic into the mix. So if that resonates with you, perhaps you'll join me and we can try to be a bit more organised, plan a little more and report back if you find things are calmer and flowing better. Sure, look, it's another thing to add to the to-do list. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Love Yourself Today is a new documentary about the music of Damien Dempsey and the effect his lyrics have had on people. An advocate for mental health, Damien Dempsey's songs deliver social commentary and have become anthems of light in the dark for so many. 
Jonathan Smith features in the film and he joins me in studio now. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? Hello, Claire. How are you, Kevin? I'm good. I'm still a little emotional about the whole experience of the film, which I watched last night. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so much more than than that, which I suppose is the the whole point, isn't it? It's more than just about the music of Damien Dempsey. It's about trauma. It's about the people who could be in the audience. Tell me about how you came to be involved in it. Um, Damien asked me, you see, it's a while ago now with COVID and everything, it's about two and a half years ago. Damien asked me, would I be willing to make a contribution to a, mu- a movie that they were talking about doing with Ross Killeen? And I said, sure, I was honoured to be asked. You know, I knew Damien to a mutual friend. And then uh, uh, Ross called me a couple of days later and he, he came into my cafe. We met and we had a chat about it. And uh, he told me what the whole premise of the movie was, you know, um, people that have been through traumatic situations, how they, suppose, deal with things and get themselves right. But more importantly for me, how they keep themselves right and the takeaway message and the gravitation towards Damien Dempsey's music, you know. Yeah, and, I, you know, they, they talk a lot of, in the movie about the sing song and, and Damien talks about wanting to give people that natural high away from drink and drugs. Mm. And you can really feel that, that really comes through and it is sad we seem to be losing that a little bit don't we the ability to sing a song when people go to a party now they're all a bit too embarrassed to, to sing a song and and it's a shame because it's a real part of who we are as Irish people Yeah without a shadow of a doubt I mean like in Ireland at the moment everything for the young kids is so instant you know it's all TikTok it's all the instant stuff they wanted you know but when you're sitting around other people you're reverbing off one another it's, it's magical you know and to sing song like my own brother at the moment will He's going through a cancer battle. He's quite ill. But Damien came down to the house a couple of weeks ago. We sang around with Kev McMenamin and myself and we all sang songs and we had a great laugh. We had a bit of food together. It lifted the spirits and I went. And you can't purchase that stuff on social media. Do you have a song? Uh, not particularly. Not particularly. But we'd we, we sit around and sing a few songs, yeah. Because if ever I've been somewhere and look, you know, I I talk on the radio, I go on TV, so I've mm. no problem with standing up in front of people. Yeah. But you need to know the words. People are talking into their phones. We all need to get ourselves a song. Take that as your homework for today. <laughs> but can we touch a little bit on your story then, Jonathan, and the, sure. the trauma that was touched on? It began for you aged 11 because up until then you'd had a, a glorious childhood. Well, I had a good childhood. We grew up in a tenement house that was in Ballsbridge. We grew up in 62 Pembroke Road, the same house where the wonderful Patrick Cavanagh lived above us. And um, we grew up, we, we were loved, we were nurtured as kids, everything was fine, you know. And uh, I took an awful beating from a teacher, you know. He punched me around the place about 30 or 40 times, you know. And when I look at my daughter now, she's 14, I was three years younger than, than she is now when that happened to me. And... Uh, a couple of months had passed by and uh, m- my older brother was having a few drinks with a friend of his and uh, I said, listen, give us one of those cans of cider and I had that and uh, it lifted that angst that I was feeling, you know, and anaesthetised what was going on with me. But I didn't know what it was at the time, you know, and I continued drinking, you know. Um, by the time I was 13, 14, I was drinking in school, you know. I was 14, I got expelled from school. And to get expelled from school in the 70s, you really want to be pressing the wrong buttons. But I did, you know. And I got expelled and I just progressed throughout my life, you know, consumed me. But I, like I said, I was anaesthetised in my emotional state, but I didn't know what I was doing. Because we didn't have the language that we have 
now. I mean, things have come on so much, even in the school system. That just wouldn't happen now. And if it did, you'd come home and talk about it and it would be dealt with. But I presume you said your parents, you know, you, you had a loving family. And I, I've no doubt mm-hmm. of that. But in those days, the teacher was in charge. And if you stepped out of line, that's what was going to happen. I, I, I don't think there would have been the same empathy for the experience that you went through, even though it was so horrific. No, absolutely not. I mean, if I if I, I said it to my friends and they just said, oh, listen, just get on with it. Don't, don't swell it, you know. But it it, 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 was, it cut me up so bad, you know. And the anger that festered in me towards that man was huge and got bigger and bigger and greater. I couldn't deal with it. the angst and pains in my chest. I was only a kid. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I was 11 years old to be beaten around that badly. It's horrendous, you know. But like I said, like you said, things have moved on now for the better, you know, and it's it's we're not at at that point today. Thank goodness. But even in relation to mental health issues, talking about things that bother and burn you, back then it, w- it would be brushed under the carpet. Where now people are more receptive. But in your experience, alcohol was helping to quell those those feelings, and sure. you began to lean on that. So, what sort of effect did that have on your life? Well, I mean, like I said, I started drinking. I was 11 years old, you know, and I mean, I've only said this to, I suppose, my two younger kids, Lily and Connor's 19 in the last while, when they're young enough to understand. My older boy's 25. But um, I started drinking, I suppose, because like I said, you're anaesthetising that pain within you. But my mother used to take these tablets at the time. They were called Veginin. I don't even think you can get them now. But they contain caffeine and codeine and all of these things. And I was eating them like sweets. Me and mother used to say, where's them tablets going? I was like, I don't know anything about that, you know. But I was taking them and drinking every weekend. And like I had a little delivery job. So I had a few pennies every weekend. I could buy myself a drink, get tablets, all of that stuff. But before I knew where I was, I was dealing with nothing. So my whole emotional development was put on hold because of the addiction I was finding myself in. Because we tend to do that with trauma as humans don't we? we we push it down we push it down we push it down yeah but it, it has to come out what was the the turning point for you well i suppose i i had tried to stop many many times unsuccessfully you know and um about 22 years ago i met this man and he he said to me that listen he he told me that he had stopped and he got help with a 12-step program. He did many, many other things as well that all benefited him. See, I could always stop, but I could never stay stopped, you see. And uh, I was away that Christmas because the year prior I had stopped drinking for eight months and I managed to get a few pennies together, you know. And uh, we booked this trip away. We were away in the Canary Islands, you know, and I was watching my wife and son play on the beach. He was three years old. And how happy they were interacting together. And it's what I would call, I suppose, a spiritual moment, a moment of enlightenment when I realised that if I was going to make a contribution to their life, I needed to make it by not drinking or if I was going to stay drinking to leave their life and leave them to develop their own lives. I suppose I could see, you know, Claire, the selfishness of my own actions. And it was that point that I came back and I asked the man to help me who initially helped me. So I went about, I mean, doing 12-step work, finding out about myself, what was wrong with me. You know, digging out the things that bothered and bore me and digging out the roots of the problematic problems I had, you know, and coming to terms with them, compartmentalising those situations. Because we, we have to do that, don't we? We have to face the trauma, sure. talk about it, deal with it. And it doesn't go away. That still happened to you, but it doesn't hold power over you the same way anymore because 
you've looked it in the eyes. I, if we don't deal with the things that bother and burn us, it's like debris on the street. We're going to walk down, we're going to trip over it. You know, but when you're shown a skill set, how to deal with things, to evaluate things for what they are, to realise the things that you can say better yourself with, accentuate those things and the things that are causing you grief to leave those off, desist from doing them, you know, uh, for sure, you know, but you do you do have to deal with it because it is there, it's bubbling under the surface and it's always going to be there, you know. And I'm sure it wasn't an easy process. I mean, you're sort of saying that with hindsight, you're, you're sober now 21 years, mm. so you're kind of looking back, but it mm-hmm. was a long and tough road that you had to put a lot, lot of effort into. Very, very much. I mean, it, it's a constant evolution, you know, and you're constantly growing, you know, because you would all the times when you're drinking where you're anaesthetised and you're not growing mentally, you're not growing emotionally. I mean, my son was much more emotionally fit at 15 than I was in my 30s. He just had a whereabouts about himself, you know. My eldest boy, but but I I hadn't got that because I stunted my own well, my own growth was stunted, but for sure yeah I mean I it's a constant evolution and I uh, it's it's a constantly looking at situations today, things to try you, you know just stop for a moment pause momentarily if you're agitated don't react, evaluate a situation and try not to make things worse you get a, develop a skill set like a mechanic or anyone else you'd have a tool bag to deal with things, and it's no different to that. It's just we're dealing with ourselves, with our own mental health, our own issues. And what about the social aspect of it then? Did you have to take a step back? Because I think that's something that holds people back a lot because they mm. think they won't be able to meet a friend. I think particularly as a as a man, women are great for meeting up over a cup of coffee. Men yeah. seem to be brutal at it. So <laughs> life without drink seems like it's going to be a second class life. Well, I think in the past, People would have thought that, you know, and I, I for me, Claire, I thought my life was over. But it was really only beginning, really, it being the truth in a matter, because, you know, it opens up so many doors, you know. Like, I, for starters, I could get a car that wasn't going to break down every second week because <laughs> I had the pennies to, to, to get a decent car, you know. Well, a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari or something. <laughs> just a working just, car. Just a car that worked, you know. <laughs> You can go to places and holidays. You can go do many different things. You be, you gain a much greater freedom. That's a better payoff for any. Like I never saw when I was drinking. I never saw the value of my wages. Never saw anything. I couldn't accumulate anything. I was unreliable. It had so many detrimental effects in my life. But by giving up that one thing, it enhanced so many other things. Now, if I had to go back to that one thing, I'd be losing all the other things. So when you look at the payoff, like it's in a balance sheet. It's a no-brainer. But anyone, anyone can stop drinking or using drugs. Anybody. But it's staying stopped is the key. Staying stopped is the key. Yeah, and look, as you say, or as you've described, it's not like you were drinking to go and have the crack. You were actually drinking to mask what was going on. So sure. it's a very different situation and a very different party to to step back from. Um, and as you say, the balance sheet that the pros way outweigh the cons. Mm-hmm. Will you stay with me? I'm going to have to take a quick break. Sure. I am talking to Jonathan Smith. He stars in a powerful new film that I urge you to go and see. It's called Love Yourself Today. We'll take a quick break. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna. And I'm talking to Jonathan Smith, who is in a powerful new film, which is out now called Love Yourself Today. It looks at the music of Damien Dempsey and some of the people in his audience who have 
experienced trauma and some of the limericks or a lot of the the, the lyrics of, of Damien Dempsey's songs, he's very much an advocate for mental health, have, have resonated with them. And it looks at all of that. I really urge you to go and check it out. Jonathan, we were talking during the break about you getting sober and moving on. Um, but you did stumble again with the, the death of your mum sent you into a bit of a, a tailspin. Tell us a bit about that. So my, my mother developed Alzheimer's and um, she passed away uh, 10, 10 years ago. And I found dealing with that very, very difficult, you know, through the issues of other family members. And you, there was the issue of poor Alzheimer's and coping with it and trying to see that, I suppose, evaluate what was going on with her that she wasn't suffering, you know, and uh, the worry and stress, anxiety, all those things caused. I found myself getting pains in my chest again and struggling with anxiety really bad. And the time came and she passed away. That was in January the 9th, uh, 10 years ago. And um, I, I had been in work and uh, there was a lady approached me at work about at the start of April, at the end of March, start of April. And she said to me that I hadn't looked well. And I said I hadn't managed to sleep for more than an hour and a half, two hours a night without waking up. Though I was six, eight hours in bed, whatever it may be, I was waking up every hour and a half, every two hours. And I said my mind was rancid with pain in my chest and everything. And she asked me, did I ever try sea swimming? And I said, uh, oh, yeah, I said, with the kids on a balmy day in July or August. And she defeated, maybe. Yeah, and she, <laughs> she was a small, tiny little thing. Uh, Maura Waltz was her name. I owe her that woman a debt of gratitude, you know. And uh, she, she she said to me, no, no, like, would you go now? Like, you know, she said, you look bad. You're telling me you're feeling bad. Why don't you give it a go? And I said to her, are you mental? I said, that sounds mental. So anyway, look. She told me that when 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 you walk into the cold water, she know you know what no matter what's going on with you, the the cold the shock of the cold water you're gonna to have to breathe. All you can think about is breathing. So you know momentarily it works. Within those ten twenty seconds, whatever. Initially, when you're in there, you know it works. And all you have to do then is lean into that. So the following week, I was out in Sea Point and I was plucking up the courage to do it. And I was out with my brother. We were working out that way, and I knew the high tide was about one o'clock. Were you in the full wetsuit or did you go in the speedos? No wetsuit. <laughs> in with the budgie smugglers. And uh, straight. So so I dived in. Oh, good God. I thought I was going to have a cardiac arrest. I really did. And there was a man there and he could see I got a bit emotional because my mind had been tortured, Claire, over the months. Really badly tortured. Before my mother was ill to see her health go down. Then when she passed away, dealing with all the family politics, all of that. I couldn't cope with it, you know. And... Um, he came up to me and he said, you don't think, right? I said, my mother's after passing away and I was recommended to come for a dip and I just felt oh, it was all too much, you know. So he said, look, look, he said, he pulled out his arm, he said, put your hand on my arm. I had a similar experience. He said, just walk in with me, you know. Take a deep breath, inhale, deep, deep, deep. Slowly, slowly exhale, he said. No harm's going to come to you. And he reassured me, you know. I walked in and I walked out. I felt somewhat better, you know. But I went home that night and I slept for six hours for the first time in three, four months. And it was like a euphoria, euphoria moment, you know, I couldn't believe it. Um, how well I slept. But I, again, being maybe a little bit cynical, I thought it was a bit of a, you know, a placebo effect. But because I'd slept in the weeks, the days and weeks that followed, I decided I was going to give it a go. So I went most every week. And I got into it more and more and more. 
and it's benefited me so much. Like I swim most every day now. All weather, it wouldn't bother me how cold, the colder the water, the better. Yeah, and it, and you don't have to get in for long. I think that's what people don't know. Like no. if you just get in, gather your breath mm-hmm. from that big shock, mm-hmm. that's the work done. That's You get the benefit of that and you come back out and you're kind of chuffed with yourself. It's something you think you can't do, <laughs> that you yeah. can. There's a positive benefit in that oh, as well as the actual yeah. nature therapy itself. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fantastic. I, I'm such a huge fan of sea swimming. And, and in Ireland, like over the last 10 years, you see... The amount of women in particular that have tapped into cease women at least 60% in comparison to the amount of men that have. But, you know, cold water swimming, even now a bit of distance swimming, it's really so good for you. You feel great. Your skin feels alive. You know, there's a tingle off you. There's a zest off you. Yeah, you can't you know, think of all the million things you're floating around your head because you're no. absolutely freezing and you're thinking, <laughs> oh my God, I'm in the sea. And that's that's the magic. And yeah. look, Damien Dempsey says it himself. That the really important things when facing trauma or facing the difficulties of life are reaching out for help and, and nature and gratitude yeah. really feed into a very powerful mind. How have you felt now seeing the movie and, and knowing it, it's out there? Um, well, 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 when Damien spoke to me initially and then Ross spoke to me after, I felt very at home speaking to Ross. I felt as if I known him a long time, even though I hadn't. And then I'd met him in, uh, twice at this point. And I felt very relaxed with him. And I spoke to my wife about it. We discussed about, you know, giving it a whirl. And I suppose the whole premise for me taking part in it and laying my story out on the table was essentially that if it were to benefit a other person, then it was worth it. Because other people had helped me, you know. And there were no fees paid for the people that helped me. The people that came to me came with an open heart and were decent people. So I felt that I owed it to others to possibly lay my own story out. Now, I was a little bit nervous. I didn't know how it would turn out because I was never involved in something like this. But the way Ross and all the crew in Motherland put it together, they were brilliant, you know. And I suppose we had great reassurance from them in it and the fact that it was shot in black and white. But I suppose the best way I can describe it was I felt somewhat complete. I felt somewhat complete that I'd shared my story out and that other people hopefully can tap into that. You know, that they can find resilience and a bit of solace in maybe in things that I've done may help them. It may not, but it may. And that's the main thing. Oh, it will. Absolutely, it will. It is a very powerful film um, and you feature beautifully in it. And of my friends who have seen it, I said, I'm meeting Jonathan today. They said, oh, I loved him. Oh, he's great. So it will, you know, it bring joy and it'll teach people some valuable Life Lessons. Jonathan Smith, thank you very much. Love Yourself Today is in cinemas now. Go see it and have your soul stirred. Jonathan, thank you again. In this legendary room full of soul and sweet empathy, welcome to the sing-song of the century. I always wanted to make people high without drinking drugs, you know? Make people forget whatever's going on in their lives. Greetings, my friends. How are you? Believe me, I've been at a place in my life where I never thought it was possible to even have a day clean. All the mayhem, the ducking, the diving. I've lost so many friends, I've been in so many close altercations with things. And I think, how am I still here, you know? There's so much trauma out there, you know? Music can help and heal this trauma.
And that's a clip from the amazing film, which I highly recommend and in cinemas now, Love Yourself Today. And thanks again to Jonathan Smith for joining us. Coming up after the break, Joe Barr on his autobiography, The Making of an Endurance Cyclist, which is more about two wheels. It's a manual for life. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. My next guest, Joe Barr, has been racing bikes his whole life. He's won over 500 races and amassed hundreds of medals and trophies in an impressive array of cycling disciplines. He is a Commonwealth Games bronze medalist from 1986 and has proudly represented his country at numerous world championship events throughout the years. Joe currently holds endurance records in Ireland and is a highly respected and recognised competitor at home and abroad. His autobiography, Going the Distance, the making of a world-class endurance cyclist, documents his life with bikes from age four to now in his 60s and he joins me now. Hello Joe, how are you? Thank you for having me. It's a lovely book full of photographs and mapping out your life with your two wheels. What was it like to put it together like that? Um, it, it was challenging. Um, it was challenging. Um, I think that, you know, it's it's a book that references cycling, but it's not totally about cycling. It's Cycling is really the thread that just pulls this story of this, of, the, of this journey that I've been on, like since, you know, uh, since a very early uh, part of my life and uh, and all the different families and countries and races that it has taken me through like and where where it has eventually brought me to like with you know all the obstacles in between and how much you learned about your, your yourself throughout it and how did it all begin for you when did you first begin to get that competitive racing bug and go from somebody who just tore around their estate on a bike to somebody who took it very seriously well i think that you know it was a you know back back then like in in, in that era that things were very different like so you know we did you know, as children you weren't really fixated on you know electronic computer games or anything like that so we were outdoors a lot and i think back then one of the things that everyone rode bikes and especially in rural ireland where i grew up in donegal and uh and there was a natural attraction to that and obviously I, w- I was actually riding a bike from a very very early age like you know a little kiddie's bike like but uh i think really where it really came from was um there was a period of that in that time that early time in my childhood where uh, the back of the morning cereal packet had images that you colored in and you know used to come with little toys inside etc cetera, etc cetera. and there was this period where there was pelotons of, of 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 riders in the back, you know, that on the Tour de France that were on the back of the pack that you could colour in. And I went through this phase of, you know, hiding some of the pack so I could get another pack to colour it in. And I just, I grew this relationship with, you know, with pushback racing. And I just loved everything about it. I didn't actually know why, but I just did. And, you know, commuting around or scooting around, as you would say, uh, obviously in those states where I grew up, like very much the countryside, you know, I, I sort of fell into uh, meeting riders on the road and it just escalated from there. And I was very fortunate to meet uh, one gentleman that's referenced in the book, uh, a guy called Thomas Piper from Letterkenny. And he really started to navigate me and I, you know, I started to race from there and, and it went upwards quickly. In your first competitive race, you broke a bone in a freak accident but that didn't deter you 
<laughs> no, I had a little bit of an accident, uh, you know, not having any understanding of how racing really functioned, to be honest. I, I crashed into, you know, a, a very well-established rider, like, and, and not alone damaged his bike, damaged my own, my own bike and all sorts of stuff, like, but, it, it, you know, again, we became great friends after it, and, and he was also one of the people who really helped to navigate and steer uh, my career. Uh, so um, it turned out good. That particular incident turned out good in the end. <laughs> but before we get into some more of the, the, the stories that come through the book from some of your races across the world, can I just yeah. ask why you do it and why at ultra level? I think that for all ultra races, why yeah. push yourself that far? Why not just cycle up the mountains on a Sunday at your own pace or even take a small race from time to time? I think that um, I think one of the things that 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 happened. Uh, first of all, my entry, my, how I actually got into endurance racing, is is not your normal process. And uh, back in two thousand and seven, my my second son was born, and he was born with a neuroblastoma tumor um, at five months old. So that was a huge, uh, let's call it a big stop in my life in general, uh, and indeed my family life at that point. And uh, you know. It, after being in that cancer process for a while, you know, like anyone, I think that feels responsible and can see, you know, the efforts that are being made in that world to try and help it and to try and help, in my case, children. Like, um, I got involved into, a, I decided I would do a fundraising event. It just happened to be that the race around Ireland, which is, you know, a very rec- well-recognized ultra-distance event, had just been uh, launched in the country. And I, I knew nothing about it at all um, but I did recognize that it was a an opportunity of you know x number of days where we could fundraise in the public eye um, not ever thinking for one second um, that you know I was going to go on a completely new journey in my life and you know the rest of that piece of its history like I went to the race around Ireland the fundraising was incredibly successful but I beat the world champion the, the world ultra champion at that time and I got plummeted into the world of ultra racing, even though it was a very, very, uh, let's call it low profile, they screwed together t- group of people that went to help me with like, but I qualified for race across America. And from that point, this whole new world of ultra racing started to open up uh, and I really enjoyed it. But one of the main teachings that I got from the whole uh, you know the whole position that I was in with my son was that, uh, and, I, and it's, it's something I took from it. And, is that life has this way of preparing you for the road ahead um, and I mean I didn't know that I could do multiple nights with no sleep uh, but the reality was I'd, I had done that in the journey with my son uh, so that process taught me how to do that riding the bike bit I was relatively good at I wasn't the best at but I was good enough and uh, and all of a sudden all these pieces uh, that I didn't realize the skills that I you know I have picked up in my life through throughout it um all had a place to play in ultra racing and then I started to realize how how close a parallel ultra racing has with life and two feet which again was the area where I struggled most because I lived life on two wheels and I was and again I wasn't great at it but it was okay at it um, but I didn't do too well on two feet so ultra racing actually has helped me to be better on my two feet and did that race and that training and raising those funds I, I think 
going through a, a nightmare like that, watching your your child face illness, you feel helpless. Of course, you can sit by their side and support them, but you do feel like there's there's little you can do. But to actually physically do something, did that help the psychological impact of what was going on? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that you know, again, I'm, I'm sort of removed from it now. Thankfully, um, mm. my son's fourteen now, so I'm very, very grateful uh, for for having that happened uh, because he was one of the fortunate ones and uh, you know one of the back then uh, from a let's call it from a, a male point of view let's call it the you know there wasn't a lot of mechanisms for for, for the the guy and the whole thing to, to to have somewhere to actually discuss what was going on so I found that I it's it started to really accumulate inside me uh, which took me to not a great place to be honest and uh, I found that, you know, when you when you look at the young children, like the other, one of the other things that I realized in that journey, uh, I'm sure it's no different in the adult world, where you rec- you come to recognize that regardless of what the next day or the next hour brings, they cannot remove themselves from that situation. They have they have nowhere to go, and while you're in it, you have no control because all you're doing, as you rightly said, is facilitating. You're just doing what whatever is really the ask of you, but you can't actually control the outcome of any of it. Um, and that that also became a big part in uh, alteration for me because it taught me actually the art of being a little bit vulnerable. Um, and when you work with a team like I do over some of the really big long races where you're out there for you know multiple days and multiple nights nonstop, there comes a point whenever you're completely open and vulnerable to the whole team around you. But, but that, uh, period in my life taught me, uh, you know, to reach out and ask and tell people that I am in trouble and tell people, you know, ask for what I need and help. And that's also a mechanism within the team that has helped immensely with my life. Like, uh, so I always try to encourage people like who are not as fortunate to have a team of people around them, like, but you know, not to be afraid of being vulnerable. Like, and uh, and that that act that aspect of it was a big factor in leading me to be able to, you know, sit down and talk that about what what the content of the book actually is. And when you're in an ultra race, what goes through your mind? Does anything go through it? Do you go into a sort of a, a, a flow state for all those hours on end? Uh, no, I think that I think that like everything in life, I think that you know there's an inner dialogue that you're having, and and you know there's always a I call it the good dialogue and and the negative di- dialogue, and when everything's going okay, you know you know the, the positive dialogue's all there, but you know whenever it starts to get really tough, because it doesn't really matter what level you're at, uh, in in ultra racing, um, that level is very, becomes very difficult the further you go, and. Uh, and inevitably, again, I think all the top guys in the world will tell you that that they go through incredibly, you know, difficult periods like to actually keep going, um, and and I think that that skill um, gets probably best demonstrated whenever you talk about um, you know sleep deprivation and riding in the nighttime, uh, because that's one of the biggest obstacles um, in endurance racing, um, and and again being able to navigate yourself through that um, is a very, very important part of it. Um, so again, the, the, the obstacles that that brings, um, 
is the inner dialogues telling you that you want to go to sleep and you want to stop and you want to get off and it's too hard or it's too cold uh, or whatever whatever that is or even I find days in sort of races like Race Across America where I'm actually in the middle of the day and it's soaring temperatures but I'm so fatigued I want to go to sleep um, so effectively you've got to be able to manage that talk and I think that that's where the team comes into play as well and where you have to become vulnerable and, and reach out for the help because if you don't it's going to stop you and again, that shows that correlation between everyday life. You're listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk, and I'm talking to Joe Barr about his autobiography, Going the Distance, The Making of a World Class Endurance Cyclist. And Joe, can we talk about some of the realities of an ultra race? I mean, you talked about some of it there, battling through the nights, the coldness. Um, I mean, in, in, in 2012, you almost died from altitude sickness. You're up 11,000 feet at Wolf yeah. Creek Pass in the race across America. What do you remember about that time? Oh, I remember it very clearly. <laughs> it was, uh, it, it's, a, it's a period in time I'll, I'll probably never forget, actually. Um, you know, it was a lot to do with, um, first of all, you know, to, to probably to set the scene for that little bit of the story was like in 2009, when I won the very first ultra race I ever entered in the race around Ireland, I qualified for Race Across America. Uh, and, and the preparation that I had for Race Across America uh, probably, you know, on hindsight now, it was not good. It wasn't certainly not good enough. Um, I didn't have the correct skill sets with me and I didn't fully understand uh, what Race Across America really was about because, you know, I, I sort of I, I sort of viewed it from the point, well, you know, I've won Race Around Ireland. It's, it's two and a half thousand kilometres long. You know, I know Race Across America is double that, but it can't be that much harder. That was sort of the mindset that I went to it with. Um, and, and the reality to it is uh, Race Across America brings so many other challenges up and above riding the bicycle for that period of time for 5,000 kilometres nonstop. Um, and two of those big challenges is, is, is the searing temperatures that you have in the desert and the altitude that you have in the Rockies. And it's a combination of both of those as to how they're situated together in the race that makes it a very difficult challenge. And when I got to... When I was coming out of Arizona after being in the desert with that sort of heat for two days and two nights, you know, I was very, very, you know, dehydrated as most riders are at that point, like even though it's being managed to the best of their capability. But Wolf Creek Pass is almost 100 kilometers long from the start to the top of it. And when you reach the top, you're on the Great Divide. You literally pass over the top of it. And uh, on that ascent, uh, I mean... I knew that there was something wrong with me. I just didn't know what it was. I was putting it down to fatigue because it got to the point I could hardly breathe. And obviously, there's the oxygen is getting less and less and less. But what I didn't know was how low the oxygen saturation had dropped in my blood. Uh, and, if, and luckily for me, um, when you crest over the top of Wolf Creek Pass and you drop down about 3,000 feet, um, there's a little town called South Fork. And there, there is a hospital, a very good hospital, actually. And uh, I was luckily for me, I, they were able to treat the altitude sickness. Like, but unfortunately, the next step of that's a coronary, and they couldn't deal with that. So they would want to have to fly me to Denver, and that couldn't happen. So there was a four-hour window, and that's part of the story where it was really, really touch and go. Like, but thankfully, they stuck with it, and and that all turned out to be okay. But it's it's certainly. Uh, it was certainly a big learning curve and it's something I'll never really forget, to be honest. Well, it didn't deter you. You went back to that race in 2014 and got that finisher's medal. And in 2019, at the age of 60, you went back again and won your category. But 
As well as talking about your achievements, I'd love to talk about this quote. I've lost way more than I've won. You have to learn to lose to improve. To get So get busy losing. In fact, lose spectacularly. And I think that's so important to talk about, Joe. We don't talk about the power in failure enough. And I love that you touch on that in the book. Yeah, you know, we, we always say we like, if, if there's a failure, we fail forward. And... Uh, and there is no failures. They're all learning processes like so effectively every time you, you know, one of the biggest failures is for us is not, not getting to the start line. And uh, when you get to the start line, that in itself is success because you've actually got the first part of the event over. Um, and that's a difficult task. Um, so so for us, like, you know, we try to, 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 to cherry pick all the good pieces that, that we have learned um, and we take those and we try and interrogate them to see how we can actually perform better the next time or what we need to change or shift because that's the only way that you can you, you can progress forward really um, because you know it, it's little simple things like you know I in 2016 I had to take a step back after you know starting in 2009 um, to try to understand um, a statement that was made actually in the very first race around Ireland um, by that world champion that I beat because I heard him being interviewed on the start line in front of me and he said, I'm not getting off my bike for 50 hours. And I literally nearly fell over because I thought to myself, "That's I don't even know how you could even do that. Uh, but that's where the learning then of you know the experiences of the different parts of my life started to all play out bit by bit in, in the race that I was in. But it took me to 2016 to fully understand that you can't uh, get to the end uh, successfully of any of these events. And effectively, you can't even actually get to the end of your life successfully uh, without, um, you know, putting down the bravado approach of, you know, it'll be okay, I'll push my way through all of this. You can't do that. Uh, you, you need to actually step back, change your mindset, which is what I did in 2016 as to how I understood what exactly riding through 50 hours really meant. And that's where I started to improve. Um, and that's just a demonstration of that because I took a completely different approach to how I was approaching um, sleep deprivation in the nighttime uh, rather than trying to bully my way through it every night, which wasn't really that successful because it was forcing me off the bike. And when I was off the bike, I was losing time. Uh, where I actually adopted the, 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 the format of slowing up in the nighttime. And when you slow up, um, that opens up a number of different avenues and, and ways to think about things. So what we always say in the team is that, you know, when you think about a thing differently, the thing you're thinking about becomes something different. And and that's whenever you actually take the next step forward and you can only do that. So that's a, it's a really a mindset change that I would suggest that has really, really worked for me. Well, Joe, I'm not going to lie to you. I knew you were going to have good stories to tell and you were going to be a good guest on the show. But I did think it was going to be a book about endurance cycling and I didn't realise it was going to be packed full of life lessons because although I don't think I'll ever spend 50 hours on a saddle, we're all on an ultra race, really, aren't we, to the end and we're all on a long journey. And it is a fantastic read about human endurance and life woven through it. It is called Going the Distance, the Making of a World Class Endurist Cyclist. Joe Barr, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 
So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer John Fardy and to Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week.